Welcome to the No Ideas Original Podcast featuring Shanam, Mr. Rob, and Ken. Episode 156. What's up, y'all? How y'all doing? Good. How you doing, man? What's up, Rob? You there? Yes, sir. Can you hear me? Hello. Yeah, hello. we can hear you. I can hey, hear you now. Okay, yeah. At first, I couldn't hear you. How y'all week been? It's been copacetic. I mean, <clears throat> what happening, man? I've been laying low, pretty much. I've been doing some, a lot of reading, a lot of reimagining things, so... I've been to my potter's house for a little bit. Oh, you getting your green thumb back on? Yeah. <laughs> trying to prepare for what's coming what's coming ahead. I know I need to start germinating some seed at the end of February, mid-February. So I'm trying to, trying to see what type of year it's going Okay, okay. What about for you, Kim? What you been up to? Oh, man, nothing. You know, the usual. Was in my, I was, again, listening to podcasts and different stuff. I listened to something interesting about... Um, the six the six uh things that highly successful people do in the morning so i was checking that out okay a little different yeah that's good that's good you know what stuff like that is good brain stimulation every now and then you need to fine tune and retune that that should work it in your cells every now and then so you hear that yeah yeah we had a we had a productive week also i feel in terms of making some strides with the um the album that we working on you know last week we uh we went in the studio um, started recording a record with Nature. Um, you know, we got uh, records, three records to choose from that TU sent in. So, you know, it's moving along. Um, you know, Rob, <laughs> yeah, I tease Rob. Rob had the experience of uh, um, getting Nature high off dissing with marijuana. <laughs> good night. It was, it, was, it was a good night, but we had a good time. Nature did his thing, man. He laid out, he laid a nice 16 out for us, man. Shout out to Gritty. Mm-hmm. For that, for that track, so, uh, it, was a, it was a nice moment, bro. Shout out to Jay Supreme, too, man. He was a good dude. Yeah. Jay Supreme called me today, too. I called him back, so he, he got to get back to me. But yo, tonight we have a very, very interesting episode for episode 156. Um, I feel like over the last month or so, we kind of most of our guests have sort of resided in the West Coast, and we're getting like just a different eclectic mix in terms of experience which i think is helpful it's been helpful to pick everybody's brain on this journey with us recording the podcast album and for people have to have an opportunity to watch the podcast to learn different elements uh that actually go into making music right um you know so we, in the past we've had again we've had publicists we've had producers we've had um djs we've had artists um managers managers right so today we have the pleasure of having join us DJ Glenn Ari. Now let me run, let me run down before you um before you introduce yourself some of this man's accolades. So this man was a DJ on K- KMEL KMEL in the Bay Area. He was music director, program director, and did promotions. And is a legendary DJ. So we want to welcome you to the platform. How you doing, man? What's going on, guys? It's Pop great. To, it's great. It's great to have you on. Great to have you on. Thanks Young, what's up? Me. And for everybody in the chat, too, what's up? Thanks for joining us tonight. So we got Young, Deontay, how you doing? Jeff, what's up, man? Hope all is well. So so um, let's get let's get right to it. Tell us about your journey to become a DJ and what made you decide to even venture into music? Wow. Well, um, we start early on at birth. Um, I'm the youngest of six kids. So uh, growing up, uh, my elders, you know, they, they were collecting vinyl. So... I remember in the household, we had the home stereo system and then um, all my brothers listened to different music. So they were buying, you know, albums and 45s back then. So 
growing up listening to everything from soul, R&B, pop, you know, the disco, you know, disco stuff to top 40, you know, like the early 80s stuff, all the all the top 40 stuff as well. So early on, that, that gave me my palette of, of music, just being exposed to that. Um, and then I think DJ aspect wise, I think at the time there was no hip hop on radio and then you'd listen to college radio to get that stuff. So right. early 90s is electro, you know, African Bambada, the Planet Rock, Soul Sonic Force. So those um, early uh, college stations were playing that stuff. So we were right. breakdancing, you know, of course we were all breakdancing and whatnot. And then- Popping and locking, baby. Yeah, doing all that stuff. So that was my love for hip hop early on. And then I think it was, when Rocket, uh, Herbie Hancock, remember what ah, award show that they did? Yeah. And then um, Grandmaster DXT did that. You brought it back, bro. You brought yeah. it back. And I was just like mesmerized. And I was just like, he's doing that on, you know, turntable. So that, I mean, honestly, I think that was on my head, like just blew up. Like, whoa, I want to do that. So, um, then from there, I was just like, I had like a little boom box and then um, I would put it, put the auxiliary of the, of the stereo into the, so I would play a tape and then that's how I kind of learned how to like match beats. Cause I was just oh, like, wow. oh, okay, oh, wow. now that's about this speed. And then I would take a record like, oh, this is kind of same. And I didn't on have a, a pitch. Yeah. On so the rack I, system? He was doing that on the rack system? Our home stereo system. But out of that, I went That's into crazy. the auxiliary yeah. end of the little boombox. Yeah. So then it was like a mixer. I turned it on a little bit. Yeah. Then I would play, you know, the tape of what um, I would record off the college show. So you know, it was like Planet Rock, things like that. So wow. you know, it was like 120 something BPM. That I remember, like, uh, you know, Pet Pano, I'm ready. You know, so I was like, oh, this thing. And then I remember throwing it. Oh, it's on beat. So then that kind of taught me how to like match beats. And I think I was like 11, 12 at the time. Um, and then me, I think I had uh, my neighbor, you know, he was like, oh, he got interested too. So it was one of those, like we went to Radio Shack and we bought that really that everybody yeah. bought in the 80s, that was $49.99 that had like two channels and a crossfader. Mm -hmm. And then he brought over his turntable. We had ours and mixed match, but you know, that was kind of like the early on when I was 12 and he was like 14. And eventually, like his parents were like, "Okay, we'll uh, we'll we'll put equipment on credit for you guys, and you know, you just pay us back, basically, whatever." But so they got us twelve hundreds and like, you know, oh, wow. and nice. then from there, you know, just was just collecting records. So that that's essentially how I got the bug to become a DJ. So you know, I'm self-taught, you know, and just learning mm. um, that, and then we, you know, early as a teenager, you're doing the little school part, middle school dances or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you really quick, just, yeah. a, just, for, just for educational purposes for our audience that may be a little bit younger. You mentioned the 45. Tell people what a 45 is. 45? <laughs> yeah. Not a gun. <laughs> no, <laughs> right. right. Record. You know, the 40, yeah. So not the big, the bigger like LP vinyl, but the smaller one. And you'd have to put an adapter on the turntable to play it. But mm -hmm. it would just be like one, one song each side, you know, A, B side. Not mm -hmm. like an album where you have the full five songs on one side, flip it over or whatever. But, you know, back then, I don't know, it could have been like a dollar. Right. That's what, what they were. Do, do you still collect vinyl? Uh, here and there. I mean, okay. throughout 
the early on that's what we did so right. it's not like today let me get a hard drive and i'm gonna have like ten thousand pumps no the vinyl vinyl you didn't have it on vinyl you didn't have, you couldn't play it so yes i was i inherited like whatever my, my brothers and sisters uh had and then as a youngster like you know honestly i think jazzy jeff told the same story he said like he would collect his lunch money and then use that to buy vinyl so it would be the same thing the little lunch money that i would get that my friend get like we might get like i might have 20 something bucks he might have 20 something bucks and we would we would like price it out like enough to get on the bus to go to like <laughs> like where i live is like you have to take one bus to get to like the mm. spots where the records were and then, like, trips, then mm. records were like 429 uh you know 12 inch yeah yeah right. like, if i had 20 bucks okay that's like five five records you get five and then we get a few more bucks for the tax and then we get enough if we got two more dollars we can get a slice uh, of cheese pizza and a water and yeah. still have some yeah. Yeah. Back home. and essentially that's how we would find like the early records like, when that, we were, like 15 16. and that was the love for hip-hop right there yep. that, that journey right there man you know it was crazy how you say you learn how to match records i remember i, I used to want to be a dj one back in the day i used to have the pitch count my watch. You can my watch the pitch count beats like a master. And that's how I used to line my creature. No, it's about tempo, you know. So about tempo, yeah. man. That was dope that you mentioned that. Yeah, definitely. From yeah, I have the crates that the slower record, you know, the slower right. crates that's like, all right, the upper like one ten to one twenty, like you know, the pump stuff, you know. Right. That's mm -hmm. how you know. And like I said, now with people with their hard drives, it's like, all right, let me get a folder, like whatever, eighties <laughs> hip hop, whatever. Now yeah. back yeah. then, you know, you had to have the homie. You might have ten crates, and you yeah. got to go to a gig. You have the homies like, hey, help me. Lugging, yeah. Hey, yeah. Lugging too, bro. Yeah. Or even the clubs, you know, early club date, you know, in the 90s when I was a cameo, like that's when you, I have a dolly that would fit in the car. And then, you know, you can <laughs> do it. Yeah, five yeah. Crates, and then you roll that into the club. But, mm -hmm. you know, if you didn't have vinyl, you couldn't play it. You wasn't, it's not now where like, oh, you know, like it's all, it, it's right. in your whole drive. Or even now with Wi-Fi, you might not have it. Oh, hold on. Let me just look it up real quick. And then boom, <laughs> you know, like within a minute. Again, I yeah, I love the technology aspect of it, but you know, that was the grind we had to do back then. You Absolutely. You know, it's funny. I, I hate to say this, so now I mentioned tell people what the forty five is. Could you explain what the SP twelve hundred is to DJs? Cause, SP <laughs> yeah, because I think a lot of people may not know what that is. Okay. Well, um, it, it's a drum machine. I owned one. I actually had an SP twelve. Then I graduated to a twelve hundred. You know, when I did production, so. If you love early 90s hip hop, um, probably 80% of, mm -hmm. of those samples, sampled records and things like that was probably done on an SB 1200. Like if you listen to early Pete Rock albums. A lot um, of Pete Rock. Yeah, he that was his favorite tool. So SB 1200 was, it's a drum machine. Uh, like now people use like an Akai MPC 1000. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but back then, you know, it was the SB 1200. Before that, you know, they had the 808, which had the boom and bass. Yeah. You know, the Roland had the, you know, 626, 727. The 808 changed the game in the 80s when they had that bass. But the SB 1200 was, it allowed you to sample whatever. So, so that's what the early producers were doing. Pete Rock and all them, they were taking the old jazz records or whatever, and then sampling pieces and bits of it and then creating like and the crazy part 
about the SB 1200, you only had 10 seconds of sampling time. time yeah. And it was only broken it up. Like the most you can sample at one given time was two seconds. So think about that. <laughs> like a baseline, mm -hmm. like, you know, you couldn't even get a whole yeah. you know, four bars. It would be like, boom, boom. And then you have to just like, all right, let me chop yeah. that kind of play it and then like, and that's, that's why a lot of those producers are much better than some of the producers yeah today. Well, like, like, you had to really be able to manipulate the machine because yeah. like like anything like you adapt to what you're given so back then like right like even i had it like oh damn like how do i sample this one you know so you would chop it up like let me just get like this first part let me get a little middle section and and then kind of play manipulate it so then it almost makes its own baseline things mm -hmm. like that but but now, like when you get these drum machines, like I have an M MPC um, live now. It's got like ten minutes of sampling time. Like I already know, built yeah. it. Like you know, you play like a whole album. Yeah, um, like you record the whole song. You know? <laughs> tell, so yeah. tell us, tell us a little bit about. So we, you know, we were talking before we came on, and you know, all three of us grew up in the East Coast. So you know, we grew up in an era where there were DJs like um, Kid Capri, Ron G, Brucey B. Doo-wop, the Red Alerts, you know, you know about the um, Cool Herc's Africa band, like we, those, those were kind of like our DJ heroes back then. Tell us a little bit about your Bay Area DJ influences and why them. Yeah, um, again, like salute to those guys as well. With you know, coming in the West Coast, we knew about those guys. You know, we heard, we had those like cassette mixtapes of the Red Alerts, things like that. Kid Capri doing his thing, so we got a little uh, chance to hear that stuff in the West Coast, but growing up, like it was different style. Like I know we mentioned it before we got on, on, on the air. West Coast was about blending records and mixing, whereas East Coast style, they, you guys were cutting a lot, just kind of slamming over. No, you know, it was, that was the style, you know, like and, uh, East Coast guys were talking a lot on the mic, whereas like, I, I want to say like West Coast guys is really just blending records. So. I know at the time growing up, uh, there was this guy named Cameron Paul, the legendary DJ. He's, he passed away, so rest in peace to him. But like, if you're from the Bay Area or even West Coast, you say that name, you're like, that's like one of our heroes because he revolutionized the game like to the point where he was on one radio station at the time, and they basically brought him over to the other, the competing station, and like gave him a big salary and mm. made him like a star like as if he was an on-air personality but he was mixing they put him on every yeah. day and he was on at like five o'clock and then at the time like he was just doing crazy stuff like he he was using like a track reel to reel but then making like mega mixes so it sound like in like 10 yeah. minutes you'd hear like 50 records just like wow. you know pieces wow. that you know he was sampling he had like they're like the Emacs sampler, you know, which was like around with the SB 1200. So mm -hmm. he was like taking beats and then like acapella, then like, you know, just step, whatever. Like, so we were just like, it was like a movie, but like a mix, but we're like, I was right. just like, how are you even like mixing? Cause I, I didn't even know at the time I was, you know, 13, 14 until I figured out like, oh, he's multi-tracking. Like yeah. It's like a studio. You when when you record, like you're, right. you're going in a 24 track studio, so you're laying down all the vocals piece mm -hmm. by piece. But then they were using that aspect, but for mixing. So it was just like, whoa. So I think around 15, I I was like, I want to do that. So um, I asked my sister at the time, like, hey, can you can you uh, put this on lightway with your credit card? <laughs> so she got me a four track cassette. Shout out uh, to your sister, bro. Yeah, no, shout out because it changed the game because at the time in the Bay Area, like 
other than like Cameron Paul, like no one was doing it like in the streets. Uh, I was wow. in high school, so I was making like those four track mixes that you give to your buddy, and then it was like, oh, you yeah. get Glenn's tape. And what, then, time, what time frame was it? That had to be like, you know, maybe 85, 86, or, you know, wow. there. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And then, so, I, you know, I was kind of making my name out to it, like the early production in, in terms of multi track. So, right. I was kind of doing that early on. Then I, I was already kind of messing around with drum machines and things like that as well. 808s, you know, like I said, I, I'd have SB 1200. And then eventually, you, were, you were learning right as the golden age was submerging. Like, it was cooking up, right? Right when you started learning, bro. Yeah, no, it was just like, like I said, I was just absorbing it and, and music was just like, man, I loved it. Like, you know, like shout out to homies, but you know, your friends are different things. You know, like some of my friends were in the sports, some of my friends were, you know, doing the dirt in the street, but they respected what I did. They knew like Glenn was about music, so they didn't mess with me or try to influence me on whatever, right. you know. Like, on the wheels, kid. Yeah, like, yeah, let him do his thing. You know what I mean? So before I, I want to shout a couple of people, I see Yella in there, Rick Lee, my brother, Jeff, Shout out, uh, hey, DJ hey. Dal Julio. I see you. You know, mm -hmm. shout out to everybody in the chat. BTT Media Group. Shout out, Jeff. It's a good brother. Shoot to y'all. Yeah, my manager, Ty Tiger, is in the background. Yeah, <laughs> But from there, like I said, from that early aspect. So luckily for me, I know we've been taking long to get there. So out of high school, uh, KML started like '86. So that was kind of right. like the early grounds of like a station kind of being a little more progressive. At that time, there was still a lot of um, dance music going on. I know in, in, in New York, you probably like the high style, uh, uh, freestyle, high energy music, yep. yeah, yeah. cover girls, point and no returns, things like that. That was big in the West, West Coast as well. So we grew up on that. And then, you know, those late 80s, obviously the booty stuff that we call now, the MC Shy Deeds of the world, you know, mm -hmm. the loop. So we would play stuff like that, you know, cover girls, and then the early hip hop stuff. Um, that was back then, you know, like, you know, the New York stuff. So that, I think that was what was great about the Bay. Um, we were very eclectic. It was it was like a big melting pot, especially the Bay Area. Cause, you know, no disrespect to the East Coast, but if you were on the East Coast, you rep that East Coast flag. You was not playing nothing else but East Coast, yeah. you know, yeah. East Coast stuff. So, but it was different for us in the Bay. We, if it sounded dope, we didn't care where. It was from. Yeah, okay. you know. So that was kind of the early blueprint of the music and melting pot at the Bay Area. So at the time, I was out of high school, and it was like nineteen ninety, I think. Uh, everybody heard of uh, King Tech uh, and Sway the Wake Up Show. Yeah. So King Tech had won the nineteen ninety mix show batter at KMEL, right. and essentially, as he was guesting, they he started like, well, I'm gonna do it like do different things so they get it they start doing like uh mcs whatnot which end up spawning the birth of they were like we're just going to give you guys a sh your own show and wow. that's the birth the wake up show in the early in the right there in 1990 classic so, show yep so i was listening to that stuff and it was like raw college radio but now on commercial radio you know mm -hmm. which was unheard of at the time and they were doing crazy stuff like commercial radio you're not supposed to curse they were cursing. And they, <laughs> then Cameo was kind of like, Raw, baby. Let it be. It was, it's Friday night. Who, who cares? So I was just like, oh, wow, okay. You know, and then 91 happens. And then they did the, the next um, battle. And uh, I had entered it. So um, fortunate enough, I was one of the finalists. So they picked five people to battle that night. I was one of them. And um, 
I won that night. And then, uh, the the prize was two twelve hundreds, which I own still today. You know, because nice. that was the start of my journey. Yeah. Who took Who took the L that night? <laughs> you know what? I, you know I, some notable people that took the L. He don't want to say. A couple. I think two people that I know. Um, one actually has passed. So rest oh, in peace, um, Leslie Perez. But he was he was one of them. Um, I think one still Ajax was in them. I forgot the other two. But um, <laughs> you, know, you know, I did my thing, um, and then I then I used it as like you know when you're hungry, you're like okay, I got my foot in the door. So what all happened? Right. They gave me like. You know, I was announced on air and all that. Um, I think I called in. They did a quick interview, but then they let me do like a guest spot. But then from there, I was like, all right, I'm not gonna just do one guest spot. So then the next week, oh, what happened? They didn't have the prize, obviously. So they're like, call back next week. So it took like a month. You know, I would call the next week, and they're like, oh, still not here. You know, give us a call. So then, mm. And I would go up. Yeah. So then I was like, well, you know what? I'm going to go up there and just drop off a tape. So then I would. And back then it was like you had to drop it on a reel to reel. People don't, who don't know what a reel to reel is, it's those spinning things <laughs> that look like a big cassette tape. So, Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. So, yeah. because the, my impression of you is that you're a turntable, you're a purist, and you're, you're, you know, you're a conventional DJ per se. What are your thoughts now on with the advent of Serato, these celebrity DJs like the Paris Hiltons, you see the Jermaine Dupree's, all these people get residencies at places in Vegas to use their Serato to push buttons while you have people like turntablists, like the executioners, which I'm sure you probably familiar familiar with, like you have turntablists that don't get nearly the amount of recognition or compensation that a Paris Hilton gets because she got pink headphones and she could push a button. What are your thoughts on something like that? I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna bash it, but you know, in terms of the DJ culture, right. you know, I applaud it because now we've moved that culture to the forefront. So if you see DJs like, I can't be mad at that, you know, like it is what it is. I mean, we can be like, okay, yeah, certain people that have the skills maybe deserve certain spots or the pay, whatever, but end of the day is a business so you can't right. you know you can't be mad at someone like paris hilton to can pull it off or whatever so i'm cool to that you know? all right i'll say it i'm not cool with it and, and the, re the reason why i'm not cool with it is because again i think djing is an art and a skill and i think that um you know like i, I appreciate serato because i think serato has helped by way of people with blending you know where blend where like you said it was a lot of slamming and just going to the next record serato has really helped a lot of people um, develop their blending skills, but I just feel like that um, that I, I'm, I'm a person who like I like to see people get compensated based on their skill set and the craft and the, the purest in me, you know, looks and I'm able to evaluate and say like, okay, this person is a DJ that's light years better than this person as a DJ. But this person, because they have the social media following, I guess, you know, is it really about their ability to DJ or is it about their name that they feel is going to believe bring more people into the party kind right. of thing, you know? Yeah. So that's where, you know, not to take anything away from her, but I just say, like, I see that a lot now where a lot of people, you never heard anything about them being a DJ, but since the creation of Serato, now you just see all these people popping up all of a sudden, you know, um, how you call it, George Jefferson, well, Sherman Hemsley's not a lie, but <laughs> Archie Bunker, whoever it is, DJ Archie Bunker on the mix. It's just anybody now who can get their hands on Serato and a laptop 
and a controller is a DJ. Right. And, and you know what? Don't let's, let's not get it misconstrued. DJing is a skill. Mm-hmm. Like, like you have to know, like you just explained, beat per minute. You have to know the beat per minute in order for it to sound right. You got to know how for the mix to sound right. Even yeah. if, even if you're scratching, you have to be timely with the scratch so it'll get right back on beat. You know what I mean? Notice that you you learned how to work on a rack system and a boombox and an auxiliary thing matching tempo. <laughs> now I can hit a button that does auto matches tempo from song. The evolution is there. Yeah. Yeah. The evolution I mean, is there, but there's still some core things that from a DJ. I, like I said, I, I salute the technology aspect, but for me, like. I guess for me, like personally, like not everybody feels the way I do, but I was all, you know, I always was a purist and it was about the music for me. Mm -hmm. Like I, I I was never about like, I want to be a DJ because I want to be famous. Famous, You know, I just love music, the the whole aspect of it. So DJing was, again, it was a craft that like I wanted to get better. I heard like people like Cameron Paul, Michael Erickson, I was on the radio and I wanted to become them mm-hmm. or then be like, oh, I wish I could be on Kenya, mm-hmm. you know, and that was my dream. So for me, I was like, well, in order to get there, then I got to like build my own skill set. So that's why I worked hard and at home to like learn how to scratch and then learn the production aspect. And so when I did get to Kenya, you know, winning the battle, like it was just like, OK, well, now it's my turn to show the masses what I can do. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it was never about the fame, the money. I just wanted people to essentially respect what I did. Right. You know, because yeah. back then, like people didn't, they only heard us in the early nineties. Like there was no it, social it's media. It's not like now, like Twitch, you could see the DJ or whatnot. Yeah. Back then you just heard you what is it the radio you? and then you heard, heard, oh, DJ Glenn Hour in the mix. And, and it's humbling today, like number one, to even be doing an interview with you guys. It's like, mm-hmm. who wants to talk to me? Like, I mean, to me, that's how I look at it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, but um, being on Twitch is funny. Like I, I, I got on the Twitch platform like two years ago and then I'm thinking like, no one's gonna, you know, check me out. But then little by little people are like, oh my God, I used to listen to you in the nineties, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, that's a trip. Or like, yeah. you, know, you got me through college or I used to like record your mixes, you know? Bro. My manager today, Ty, said, I, I just met her two years ago, but she, she told me that she used to record my mixes on a boombox in the early 90s <laughs> so she could work out to or do yeah. her thing. And I was like, oh, I wish she had those tapes today, you know what I mean? But, you at, know, it's um, crazy, you know, crazy. At, K- at KML, you re- you, you kind of um, rose through the ranks, though, because you were eventually program director and music director, right? What what is that what does that role entail to be a... <laughs> music director or program yeah. director at a radio station and so that yeah so essentially it was like a 10 year span i was at cameo from 1991 and then i worked my way up the, the rank so first couple of years just doing uh like weekend mix show and then eventually they gave me like a uh everyday slot like 5 p.m uh i also did uh there was a spin-off off the wake-up show called the, the 10 o'clock bomb so me and sway did that at 10 o'clock at night same it was kind of like a mini wake-up show where we have artists come in and we were playing all the, the the newest records at the time. So, and then eventually Sway got to do mornings, like about 95. And so he asked me, I want you to become my DJ. So, you know, it was like 5.30 to 10 o'clock, Monday through Friday. I mixed at 5.30 to six o'clock to start the show. I went on again at seven and then again at nine. And then every time Sway talked, he wanted me to like cut up beats in the background. It's like the background music. <coughs> we did that for two years and eventually he left to go to L- LA and then MTV around 97 
And that's when I was like, well, you know, I'm thinking like, well, what I'm going to do. So I had stepped to the program director at the time. I was like, hey, I, I could do more than just mix. And then he was like, oh, you want to become music director? So mm-hmm. I was like, hell yes. But music director of a station, essentially, you're the one kind of picking the music that goes on the air. So yeah, all the, yeah. Why do music directors always get the bad rap? Now or then? <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, even now, I mean, because you know. Well, now, I mean, you know, I think it's the product of the music, so everything kind of sounds the same or whatnot. Yeah. But you know, for that '90s man, that was the golden era of hip hop. So, man, like, uh, man, I was loving it because you know, obviously, I got I'm the gatekeeper now. I had yeah. the keys to the station. Yeah. You know, yeah. San Francisco's market four in the country, so. Any yeah. given time, you have a million plus listeners listening in the mm-hmm. Bay Area to your station, and I'm I'm responsible for the music that's on the air. So, so here's the question: yeah. Is has there ever been a song or something that you felt like you should have put on that you might have missed on? No, nah, I, I always no. <laughs> <laughs> I had my hit, you know. I mean, you, you don't, you know. Sometimes you don't hear it right away. For the most yeah. part, I was pretty on it. I'm a DJ, so I was always progressive. So That's we kind of cool. he- heard those songs that early on. And fortunate for us, like again, like we broke a lot of stuff in KMO. And at the time, because hip hop oh, was yeah, still, yeah, it was in the early '90s. Like we had to fight corporate. Like I remember, they they didn't even want us to have our our slogan was, you know, KMO jamming the most hip hop and R&B. Yeah. And I remember corporate saying like, that just sounds too street. Like you need oh, to change wow. it. Like you know, KMO playing. Playing today's hits, like that's like a, you know, right. AC slogan, not a, mm-hmm. you know, street cred, you know. Yeah. So, I remember I had to like fight about it, and you know, they eventually let us do what we did. But it was to a point where, like I said, we talked about it before. In the East Coast, it was all about Hot 97. The East Coast, all right, Hot 97. West Coast, it was about KMM. So we were the bookends of the country right. uh, mm-hmm. in the music industry. So. If you're a record label or any artist, you're trying to get your record on those. If, and a lot of times, if one of us play it, it spawns like the rest of the you country. Will, you will, you will. Jumping on. All right. So that's why you know, they so, would always like, hey, can you get this record on? And you know. Yeah. So so put us, put, us, put us in the room when you have an artist that probably, they probably weren't the artist that they are today that we all know. But they were in that room with you and their rep or whoever it was pitching the record saying we want kmel to play our record and you're on the other end receiving that pitch can you tell us about some of those times like who are some oh, of the people man. that came to you and actually pitched the record i mean some memorable stuff or just like i said like it's just like my desk just like me and you and you're just on the other side of my desk so i remember sitting down columbia records comes in you know Glenn, Columbia Records here. I sit down, they come in, Columbia rep, and it's Destiny's Child sitting right across from me. Wow. They're playing the No, No, No record. Young Beyonce, Kelly Rowland, you know. And what, 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 what was your response to that? Did you hear it immediately? I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, I heard it. I'm like, yo, this is, you know, not the time. Right. You know, it was a sample of the uh, you know, old school song. So I'm like, yeah. okay, yeah. You know, then obviously the Wyclef influence. So I'm like, okay, yeah. So I was all, yeah, we, we're going to definitely play that. And what were they, what were what were they like? What was their response? Was Just it shy? A- they were young. A lot of times, I've been you know we'll talk about it later. I, I you know I, I worked on the record side as well. So a lot of times these record labels sign these acts so they're young. So a lot of times they're just like that is like don't even they're just like not even saying nothing. Like the rep has to be the one talking, other than them saying like hello hello. But you know so but yeah like I remember they were 
they were shy as hell, like didn't you know, didn't really say much, you know, but um, people like that. I remember sitting down with Jay-Z, you know, like the early time, like them playing the stuff. So, you know, before, like obviously now, like the big combined, like Eminem. I remember um, Eminem, they, uh, he was coming to the Bay Area for the first time. He went to Berkeley to do like an in-store. Mm-hmm. And then, so our street team was, you know, ah, setting stuff store. up. Street team. Yeah. Wow. And then I remember the street team calling me like, oh man. Eminem got in a fight with a bum outside the store. <laughs> he was yelling at a bum and like threw a piece of pizza at him or something like that. And we're like, oh man, like, you know, and then, you know, he comes to the station, you know, we do the interview. So, man, or like, now, I remember. Now, now, is there is there somebody who sat down with you and they pitched the record and you was like, I don't, I don't know if, I don't see this one. This is not rotation ready. Yeah, I mean, but but somebody you know, yeah, like, you, can't, you can't play it all even you may like a record but you got to remember i have so many slots like mm, right so if i have like like five open slots to put five new records in but i'm getting pitched by 20 Everybody. potential records yeah you have to kind of pick and choose you know what, what's best and you got to remember what's what's best for your marketplace it's not even about me it's about right. my listeners right. so i may not there's times where i might not like the record but like I would play it for like people in, in, in the station, like the females, because that's our target demo, like a female 18 to 24. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, hey, what do you think of this record? Oh, I love it. I'm like, like I didn't hear it, but I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> right. maybe I missed something. And you, you, you put it in and then you use your research. Like, oh, is it getting phones? You know, is mm-hmm. it selling? You know, things like that. Like back then we didn't have social media and all that stuff, the social media, but back then we relied on things like requests, yeah. you know, just a vibe if we're in the clubs. You know, we would play these records and if it would react, and then just, just, uh, just word of mouth, like you know, like I said, like I would ask females of the stations or you know people, right. whatever, so just to oh, verify things. Yeah, that was kind of our our street research yeah. that we did back then. I wonder though, you know, you know what I think that um, probably you guys have over a Hot 97 is that it seems like these other markets are more inclined to embrace local artists. Yeah. At some yeah. point in time, New York moved away from yeah. local artists and lost the distinct sound of what New York, yeah. Connecticut, mm-hmm. and New Jersey sound like, and just started playing primarily down south records, west coast records, or whatever. They were just chasing whatever the trim was. Yeah. But when you look at these other markets, you know, there's a lot of actual discovery of local artists embracing local artists and putting local artists in the rotation and giving them a shot. Why do you think that is? I mean, like I said, I, I think we talked earlier about it before this, but the Bay Area is, is I'll say, you know, I live in, I just came back to the Bay Area. I've been in LA for the last 20, 21 years, but the Bay is just different. Like, it's so eclectic, like just from the people yeah. and just what we listen to. We have our own style, things like that. Just our own inner culture that like people pick up on too. Uh, and back then, like, we played everything. Like, we played everything. Early KML, they were playing, like I was saying, freestyle music. And then mm-hmm. we were playing, like, you know, the early eight, uh, booty stuff, like the Two Life Crews, the MC Shy D, stuff like that. Uh, right. On Peppers, you know, those up-tempo booty records. But then on top of that, we would play um, East Coast hip-hop. So we were playing, like, those late 80s uh, New York hip-hop at, on KML. And then on top of that, then in the 90s, we had a, a surgence of 
those local apps. So like today, like we, you know, you've heard of like the Loomis that I got five on it, yeah. the E40s, you know, and then, you know, if, if you know other records from the Bay Area, essentially KML broke those records or we helped right. those guys get record deals. Mm-hmm. Like either they were like, just like press up vinyl that we played. And next thing you know, they got it. They ended up signing with a record deal because yeah. we were playing those records on the air. And then mm-hmm. the label would call us and like, who's that? What's this record? You know, yep. oh, it's Drew Down, Local Cat. Oh, is it doing? Oh yeah, it's like the hottest record on the on, on the airways right now. Boom, gets a record deal. Nice. I remember that happened in New York. No, yeah. no. <laughs> and then on top of that, like I, there was time where I would get flat because we were playing abundance of you know i was playing what's hot so mm-hmm. if it was from the south or the east or you know right. the west you know but some of the local artists were getting mad that we weren't like supporting them and it wasn't even about that it was just like i'm just trying to you got to remember it's a business so i'm trying to play the cream of the right, keep the listeners happy yeah. yeah if they would if they were in new york in the new york market they would have really been upset if they were upset right. with you guys because yeah. from my perspective the bay area embraced a lot yeah. of the local put it, people put it this way like it was like whatever 97 98 whatever it was uh annie up mo mop yeah big straight up new york till i die type of record we were playing that six o'clock in the morning on cameo i had that program <laughs> <laughs> but, but we would start the, 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 rolling. The, the morning, you know, Sway is like, you know, good morning, Bay Area, you know, Annie, up. and we're just, you know, like, <laughs> to go to show that we're, we're a West Coast station playing New York records. Let me find out Sway is starting road race early in the morning. <laughs> yeah, you know, but then right after that, you know, we would play like, you know, I have a local, whatever, E40 or whatever, but that's, that was the beauty of the Bay Area, we were, we were in the uh, eclectic melt, melting pot. Right, so right. That's why people Very accept that everything we play. Yeah, that's, that's just, you know, then when the South stuff started popping, you know, the juveniles backed that thing up. We were forced on that stuff too. So, yeah. So it was it was just whatever was hot. Because when we were in the club, so we were, if we knew it was in the club, then it's got to be on the airways too. So yeah. that's why it was so you know, so great for us, you know, KML. And, and then, like I said, to be part of even the, the labels calling me at times and we're like, can we sit down with you, Glenn, and we want to play you some records, and you know we want to see what you think, what should be our first single. So mm. they, they they came down, um, MCA, and they were playing playing Commons album, you know, and playing different tracks. We think we're gonna go with this album, and I was just like, nah, go with the light. Mm. Like Good choice. Yeah. <laughs> I like you, Glenn. That was good stuff, man. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, things like that, like, you know, like the behind the scenes stuff. But, you know, for me, those are like little memories that like I cherish to be a part of certain things or blowing right. up certain records or even, like I said, helping those 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 Bay Area cats get their record deals, knowing that like, oh, wow, if we didn't play those records on KML, that could have changed their career, you know? So, I don't think, or, I don't think, I'll, go ahead, Ken. So how did like from going from the position you had at the radio set, how did you transition that over to Capitol? Because it seems like you know you were breaking records then and you started breaking records at Capitol. How did that come about? Um the last few years and obviously I got to music director and then eventually they, they added the program director. So program director is the highest um, job at a radio station. Basically he oversees everything from the on air aspect to the music, even though there's a music director, program director could still supersede. Oh, yeah. Just think of the president, a vice president. So, <laughs> music director is almost like the vice president, program director is the president. So, 
Um, but I would oversee everything, everything from sales. So I would have weekly sales meetings with the staff to see, you know, what we're selling at station, promotions. Oh, what's going to be our promotion, you know, this week? Or so they might be like, can we get a grand prize to give away? So then I would have to call the label like, hey, can you sponsor whatever? Super Bowl weekend, we want to give away like a big screen TV. Hey, can you sponsor it? So things like that. And then on top of that, just making sure everything just runs cohesively the synergy between all the different aspects wow. of the station. So you oversee that. So so I was doing that my last two years there. At the time we were iHeart or we were Clear Channel, which essentially became Crazy. iHeart. Yeah. And you know, the politics, the aspects of it, I started getting to a point where like, it wasn't really no fun no more. Mm. And I felt that I kind of outgrew my time there. You know, yeah. I, was, I was there in 1991, so it was 2001 at the time. And at the time, Capitol Records were like, hey, you, you interested in coming here to LA and, you know, doing promotions for us? And I was just like, I've never done promo before. Like, why are you, you know, so, but they're like, well, you were on the other side of it all these years. So, how, <laughs> yeah. you know how it goes. So, yeah. which was true. So it's then, cool. I was like, okay. like yeah. So then, uh, you know, I took, I took that leap of faith. I uh, mm. moved in 2001 nice. uh, to Capitol Records. So I was working in the, in, in the building right there in Hollywood, eighth floor. So I did the famous that. building that we always yeah, see. Famous building, and it was great to learn. Now, do you know, coming from the radio aspect, learning that that aspect that of breaking records, but now working for a label, a big machine, to now like, okay, Nick, you're only as good as what they had. So, the first two years of Capital, I admit it was it was it sucked. Like I was like, well, <laughs> you know, for me, first got it's about relate. You know, you know how it is. It's about relationships. Yeah. So. For me, like I'm in, I was always in just KML in my box there. But when I got to Capital, you, right right off the rip, they were like, "You're gonna be a national director of you know rhythm promo." So then I had to like then wow. learn the program director of all the stations across the country. You're mm. talking about a hundred some people on top of music directors. So it's like some people I kind of know West Coast, but then you know some some of these people you're calling or emailing for the first time. Hi, I'm Glenn, whatever. So what's the toughest part know, of doing all? What was that? What's the toughest part of juggling? I mean, that first year, I think the first year was like a juggling act. It's, it's more, it's like going to a new high school, just learning the faces. So mm -hmm. so they gave me the learning curve, like knowing like, all right, you know, uh, not going to just be overnight. But I think it helped for me that I was coming from radio. <laughs> so then they respected me right off the rip. They're like, oh, you did radio? And they're like, oh, KML. Mm -hmm. Then they were more intrigued about what I did. So then it helped me kind of build my relationship with these guys. Um, Quicker. And then a lot of these radio guys that I met like 2001, they're still close friends today. So, which I love because now it's not even about, you know, like we call and talk about family versus, you know, whatever. Like the last minute, I'd be like, hey, let me ask you, what do you think of this record? Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what what's great about it. But like I said, uh, those first two years of Capital was kind of horrible because we had some shitty records. <laughs> I, had to admit, I was like going to like these meetings and they're like, we ain't playing this. So, you know, I love you, Glenn, but we're not playing this. So. But then we got like on a little hot streak. Uh, I think, you know, I remember, remember Chingy right there. We had to sign that. That was, that was, that was a nice burst. That, yeah, nice so that was the number one record we took. Um, then he had like three number one back-to-back-to-back -back -back singles. Yeah. So we yeah, rode that okay. wave. And from there we had, um, remember Mims, This Is Why I'm Hot. Yeah. That was kind of gratifying too because I remember it was out of like more of like Florida region originally as a independent. We signed it and then we were moving up the chart and it stalled a little bit. We were like kind of about 35 on the chart 
and it was kind of dying. Like it was like negative actually on, on, on the chart. And then I remember we got lucky, like Power 106 in LA. We're like, we're gonna put it in like 50 times a week. And another station like put it in and it started kind of like building up. And then yeah. it caught on like wildfire. And then yeah. he got in the 20s to the 10. We, we got 10 and I remember president, you know, brought me in. It was like, we gotta take this number one. So then we just like grinded and grinded. We got top five and you know, then we took it number one. And at the time he actually broke a record. Remember ringtones was the thing. Mm-hmm. He was the first yeah. artist to sell a million ringtones. Yeah, yeah. You mean it wasn't Soldier yeah. Boy? What was that? Before Soldier Boy and all that? It was me. <laughs> that was like, you know, that was like, he was the first to do a million ringtones. So, you know, so even, and then he was this great guy. I was on the road. And it was, it was cool at Capitol because when I worked at Capitol, I pretty much was on the road all the time with the artist. So what, when you're at a record label, we call them promo runs. So basically what happens, a new artist, that you may sign, you got to take them on the road. So you, you want to, you, they would like- Take hands and kiss babies. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, you, mm-hmm. you got to, like, like you said, like when I was on the other end, like Destiny's Child across from me, Jay-Z, whoever, like now I was the one taking those artists to <laughs> radio. Then I would have to go to KML, my own stomping grounds with the <laughs> artists that I had. Yeah, and was be like, hey, you know, you know, do all the jargon. Hey, this is, we're getting played here. You know, we're doing this, that, you know, or yeah. whatever you can. And then, you know, so you, I, le- I got to learn that aspect of it. And then working at uh, at Capitol, you also see the machine aspect of it. So mm. seeing how we all can come together, you know, from marketing to street team, video to radio to right. other mm. aspects of it. And, you know, that was the beginning of social media at that point as well. So. We would have those weekly meetings and you know then it was just like wow it's kind of great to s-. then when you have an artist that you take from nothing and then they sell they and then plus yeah. and you're like i had a hand in that to help that so it was, it was real gratifying to, to to do that as well so i did that um i did that for 10 years as well so i, I did that until about 2010. um at capital let's see we had snoop uh, remember when he had Beautiful with Pharrell? That album mm-hmm. was through us. We took that number one at Urban and Rhythm. We had Westside Connection, uh, then with Ice Cube. Uh, then we right. had like Mac 10. Uh, the Chingy stuff, uh, Latoya Luckett. So let me let me ask you this. What's it like or have you had the experience of actually having to get behind and promote a record that you didn't believe in, that you was like, oh God, we really trying to push this to radio? Have you had experience? Um, I mean, yes, end of the day, it's your job. Like, you know, if you're employed to do something. You know, that was a not, yeah, like, you know, I admit, I, I didn't like every record that, that A&R put out, mm-hmm. but you know, your your job is to use your, your relationships and your resources and your best ability to get it played. So. Yeah. Or, or like I said, like you may get it on, but the real records will stick. So okay. you may get it on, like those those records that are so-so. You may get it on a few stations, but then eventually it's gonna, it'll be exposed. Because it's not gonna get any requests, so yeah. they're gonna yeah. stop doing it. And then you know, then eventually, okay, it, it runs its course, and then all right, you're on to the next. And and you know, I I hate to say it, but even at a major label, I feel bad because I worked with artists that were like signed, and then record didn't work out, and then they get dropped. Yeah. Um, and you know that's they're like whoa i'm assigned to Cavill records and next thing you know they drop so 
you feel for them because next you know or sometimes the, the bad aspect of it like you know spending their advanced money um, um yeah. yeah like here's a story uh, mac 10 um like he he gets it he we sign him he gets an advance um to record the album advance is people don't know when you get signed to a record label they usually give you advance money so you use that money for whatever to like pay your producers the cost of the studio whatnot so i heard they gave mac 10 350,000 to go oh, ahead and use that for you know paying producers recording whatever right i had i knew some of the producers on the album never got paid to this day right so i remember we were doing an in-store in, in one of the cities in la Matt pulls up. Remember when those Bentley convertibles first came out? Three hundred K. You know where the advance went. Oh man! Shoot. I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna switch gears really quick from um, promotion um, and talk a little bit. Can you tell us a story about how the um, the Mega Mix for Ice Cube came about? Oh. <laughs> um, well, we rewind back. That was uh, KML. Uh, like I said, I, that was what I was doing, you know, multi-tracking, or that was what, when I came to KML, or the cats like Cameron Paul, but uh, before us, that was what they were doing. So if you were Bay Area, you knew about multi-tracking and whatnot. So at the time, I had an 8-track reel to reel. So I remember, I was still just, it was like 93, I believe. Um, the priority rep was a good friend of mine. He called me and was like, hey, um, Ice Cube's um, putting out a greatest hits album and he wants to put a mega mix medley on it and, mm. and he said we're we're gonna pick three people to submit so you're gonna be one of them i heard baker boys out of uh, la was the other one and then um someone else i, I don't know, I know the third one so this was a monday so back then 93 we didn't have mp3s and nothing like that <laughs> and or like you know serato then so literally i had to make the mega mix off the vinyl that i had Right, so I had to just take, and then they said too, Cube is coming to uh, the office Thursday, so you need to make it in the next day too. FedEx it to us on a DAT, because you know, again, no MP3s back then, so and we need to get it so we have it ready for um, by Thursday. So essentially, I stayed up for 48 hours and um, and you know again like just got all the Ice Cube records I had. And again, it was records, so I had a ASR 10 sampler, S, you know, SB 1200, so, you know, just sampling things and then multi-tracking it and again, just going back. Oh, that didn't work, but, you know, just going back and back. And then I think I finished it late Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, I go to FedEx, you know, send off the DAT and then they get it Thursday and then um, I get the call like uh, in the afternoon and my, my rep was like, Cube heard all three mixes and guess what? Like, he liked yours. I was like, mm -hmm. what? He's like, it's gonna be on the album. And I was like, what? Like, well, you know, <laughs> twenty-two maybe at the time, whatever. So I was just yeah. happy to be a part of it. So, you know, I was geeked to be all right. Be my mega mix is gonna be a, a track on the album. You know, if you pick up the bootlegs and B-side album, it's the last track. Uh, Cube named it. I I don't know how he named it, but it's called. The void of pop niggified megamix. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you see it, I didn't name it. Cube did, but um, 
but yeah and it was cool because i can't remember at the time source did write-ups on like out you know albums you know yeah. and, mm-hmm. and i think it got you know it, it, it's obviously a, a remix and a bootlegs album but it got mm-hmm. like four mics i believe but then i remember the last part of the review was like but you know one of the best part of the uh, album is and they named the mega mix thing like you know it's how it was dope and the scratching and whatnot so you know gave me props to it so right. i need to find that source magazine I gotta that. <laughs> yeah 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 and it went on to, to it went and sold over gold it sold over 500 cap copies so you know i got a little gold album i should have brought it. nice did you, did you um did you get like any publishing off of that no that's that's the thing because <laughs> you know at the time 22 so i think they were saying okay we're gonna uh, pay you pay you out yeah, yeah like yeah. i got a lump sum it would you know it's 22 year old I'll take right. it, you know. So yeah. Now, did you did you, did you pay in the mail? Did you break your sister off? What was that? Did you take care of your sister? Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was years later, but no. But I tell her the story, like, yeah, if it wasn't for for you getting me that four track, things could have mm-hmm. changed. You know, it could have went like a different way or whatever. Yeah, and then also I hear that you broke a um a, a, a Lauren Hill track like a, a bonus track for Lauren Hill tell us about that oh so the can't take my eyes off you record yeah yeah oh, yeah right. so obviously everybody knows that now and I mean it gets played on like multiple like conspiracy, conspiracy theory album right yeah mm-hmm. so again that was like um whatever 94 95 so I'm at the movie theaters watching that movie and then you know movie stuff or whatever so then I think I was on a date so movie ends everybody's going out so i'm just sitting with with the girl just trying to chop it up and the the credits are rolling but i mean literally like the whole thing it was like the lights come on they're sweeping the popcorn up trying to wait on us to get out and as i'm getting up i hear the beginning of that song and i was like you know you were just too good too i'm just like oh what the fuck and at the time my head was spinning like this needs to be on kmel but i'm thinking like well how am i gonna get it you know it's in the movie and at mm-hmm. the time, like, there was no soundtrack yet, like, you can buy oh, yeah. So I was thinking, like, you know what I'm going to do? Remember, it was Blockbuster. Mm. So I'm like, <laughs> in, in a couple months, that movie's going to come on Blockbuster. And, you know, back then it was still VHS. It wasn't even mm-hmm. VHS yet. So I just waited patiently. I went to Blockbuster about every week. And then finally, <laughs> oh, shit, conspiracy theory. So I took that VHS home. And, you know, because I was already, like, in the studio. The I, ran the court. I ran the VHS tape, the <laughs> RCA out, ran yep. it through my mixer board, mm-hmm. EQ'd it better so it had bass and all that, recorded it into a DAT player, and I brought it to the station, the station re-recorded it, but then we put our sweepers, you know, the K, N, E, L. Yeah. That way, our competitor station, Wild at the time, couldn't record it off our rate. <laughs> I knew they are going to be like, how the fuck? So yeah. sure enough, next morning, I'm telling Sway, we're going to work from here just Lauren Hill song. And we stopped the music. Oh, right now. And we just, you know, we, we made it. Oh, Lawrence, Lauren Hill sent this to us. <laughs> we play it. Phones off the hook. Yeah. Oh, my God. What is that? You know, no one knew, you know, and then then we're just, okay, then I already knew, like, oh, man, I bet you Wild is like pissed. And sure enough, I get a call. I, I get off the air at 10. I get a call from uh, Columbia Records. I knew it. Where'd you get that Lauren Hill song? <laughs> Why? Mm. Well, we're just wondering because you know that's not our I'm like, the hell it is. We got it from her. Well, you're not. <laughs> hey. I'm like, why? You know, I call. I'm like, why? Could Wild call you? 
you know, they were like, no, no, we're like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> whatever. So then we just kept playing it, right? Mm. And they couldn't figure it out. And then a week later, they even sent me a cease and desist letter. Oh, wow. Andy, so if you don't know in the chat, cease and desist letter, like if they send you that, you're, you're technically they're saying we'll sue you. Yeah, again, that's right. I remember I taped it on my, my, my office door and I put a big X to it. Like, F you. Because it was like number one phones. And mm. it was like three weeks. You know, we just kept jamming it, jamming it, jamming it. And then to a point where like even like the trade magazines was like, Cameo is playing this this song that no one seems to have, Lauren Hill, you know. <laughs> and we just kept running for it. And they were the trade magazines were calling me like, Where'd you get it? And I was just like, Lauren Hill. <laughs> <laughs> and so finally, um, it was probably like almost a month. And then I think they figured it out. So then they made a copy and Columbia then sent it obviously to Wild. And then I remember why I was like, brand new Lauren Hill, you know, it's like After a month, right? play for a month, play for a month. times a day, you know, mm. and then it was just funny. But then they had to send, uh, send, they sent it to the rest of the country as well. So then other stations started picking oh, yeah. up on it. And the crazy part is that she had dropped her, her album. It was on her album, right? Well, yeah, like, it was. At the time of her dropping the, the album. The track at the end. Yeah. It blew up. So what they had to do after the first 500,000 copies were sent out. They had to go back and strip it in as a bonus track. So mm -hmm. if you buy that album today, it's a bonus track on that album. So, wow. so yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't know if I was a soldier. I mean, it was on conspiracy. I just happened to be smart enough to be like, that needs to be on radio. As, as some would say, you finagled the bagel. Yeah. <laughs> but what, what was great, so let me finish that story. So months later, she goes on tour. She hits the Bay Area, you know, the Miss Education of Lauren Hill. And then Columbia, you know, invites me backstage. Like, you know, this, we want you to meet Lauren. And so, supposedly, what the story said, they said that she didn't like the record, so that's why mm. he never made any album. Mm. But then they were saying that's why she was mad that we played it. But that was just bullshit. But I didn't know. So then all of a sudden, I'm, I'm backstage, and the rap. She comes out, Lauren, and then I'm thinking, okay, I'm gonna, you know, shake her hand, say what's up. And then the, they put Columbia. They put me on the spot. Hey, come here, Lauren. And then they said, where'd you get the record from? And then she walks up to me and then she kind of was like, kind of gave me the eyes like, <laughs> and then she smiled and then she opens her arms and then she hugs me. Oh, she, she whispers in my ear, thank you so much for doing that. Wow. Yeah. wow. And then we only Look. chopped it up. She's like, she even said, she's like, I, I recorded it, but I, I didn't really believe in the record at the time. Mm. But you know, sometimes you know, it takes another listen. Yeah. Sure. And I said, you know, I told her, I said, you know what? I heard it on at the movie theater, and oh, okay. I, I instantly said, I need that. Like I would have played it months if I had it there. I would have went straight. I would have drove from the movie theater straight to the radio station to get that on the air. But I said, I, and I told her I had to wait for it to come on VHS. <laughs> and she was laughing. She's like, you did that? I'm like, yeah. Glenn, Glenn, Glenn. Would it have been like they'd have put you in front of her, and, or she would have been like, "Where'd you get the record from?" And everybody was around. Which you, I, I got it from you. <laughs> you don't remember? Where'd you get the record? I got yeah, it from. Remember, you gave it to me. Hink, wink, wink. <laughs> um, from your perspective, how has promotions evolved? Has promotions changed from you know, let's say, like we always talk about the golden era of hip hop to now? Uh, it, it's changed. I mean, I mean, end of the day. It still comes to to me. I look, it's the product. So if you have a good record, it's, 
kind of, you know, like I said, cream rises right. to the top. Right. Mm-hmm. So I believe that if you have a dope, dope record, it's going to be heard. So or records that may not be as great, like that's where you need the promotion aspect. I think now there's more um, metrics. Mm-hmm. So now like labels or even radio, like before when I was a music director, I can only go off like my own like, um, like phones for, mm-hmm. for me. And then I would look, I would ask uh, labels to send me sound scan every week. So I would look at like my marketplace, maybe surrounding marketplaces, mm-hmm. and then maybe across the country. And then just, you know, vibe and, you know, like, like they said, heart, your gut. Like, you know, if you, you think it's a hit. Whereas now, it's, it's good and bad. I think it's a double-edged sword. Now there's metrics where, like, you know, oh, it's got so many views on TikTok. It's got so many, you know, yeah. you know, all these social media platforms. Now, those are metrics now that labels look at as well as radio. And then on top of that, sales, things like that. And then you remember back, there was no iTunes sales back then. Yeah. It was about album sales. So yeah. now you got things like, you know, oh, we're it's selling this much and this and that, or and then just the whole. So it's good in a way, you know, I guess, because there's more more metrics to look at. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I think it, in some aspects, it kind of messes things up too, because I think at the label aspects, some of these A&Rs are lazy nowadays and are, signing acts just because of their following views yeah. and yeah. You know, this or that and whereas like people that may be deserving because of the, the mm-hmm. music may not get the chance so and, i get and, it you know end of the day it is a business like for radio is in uh plain and simple terms if you work in radio it's about ratings and revenue and la- and back then labels were primarily looking at what bds Yep, and media base and BDF. So like if and they would sign acts just like what we were doing. Like they signed all those barrier acts because they were we were playing these records like 50, 60 times a week yeah. in locations. And then next thing you know, they would see other stations surround like Bay Area, like surrounding us would be like Sacramento, Fresno's of the world. Then they it would be spread like wildfire. Cameo starts something and it would spread to those regions, might make it to LA. So then labels would pick up on that and be like, okay, we need to sign these, these acts. So. This is this is a really good question right here, I think, from Young. When people pay for promotion, what exactly are they paying for? Uh so like like for me now, I I do indie promotion. So I'm I still work with the major labels, so basically they hire me as a hired gun to speak on the record's behalf. So I work with like Def Jam, the public records. Uh, Warner Brothers so when they have their their, uh, artists now new record I'll go and email it to the radio stations and then promote on on the label's behalf so essentially you're paying me to promote your record so I'm the one talking to the radio stations and like speaking like if it was an independent artist that uh, you know hired me to promote you got to remember sometimes an independent artist don't have the relationship or yeah you can easily send your your um, song email you can find an email and email like a program director but if the program director don't know who you are you think he's going to open that email probably not yeah Yeah. but if it's from you know glenn ari like the homie oh what's glenn saying and then i'm saying hey what's up hey do me a favor check out this record and let's chat chop later yeah then i call him later hey you hear that record oh yeah it's pretty cool okay then you know i do my spill and then I'll, I can be like, hey, you think you can give it a shot? Or, hey, maybe you can get your mixtures to play it first and test it out there. So, mm, okay. Yeah, so little things like that. But like if 
that person didn't have me, you know, right. that, that record being on deaf, deaf ears. You know, yeah. Making that, basically making that connection and opening yeah. doors that people couldn't open their own. Yeah. Um, so essentially that's what you're paying for promotion wise. Um, just the voice, the person to really like be that your cheerleader or the professional knowing how to talk to a radio person. Mm-hmm. Again, like if you don't know it, you, know, you could be the artist, but you don't know how to, you don't have a relationship with a program director or someone at the station. So mm-hmm. you know, that, we're skilled position. So that's what you're essentially paying for. Sure. Just like when you hire a DJ at the club, you're paying him to play music at your club. Yeah. Uh, I got certain people that. are paying good money for certain DJs because of the skill set. Yeah. They know they're going to bring in a crowd or whatnot. So. so, does college radio still actually have a role in, in artists? Because I know it, the roles got somewhat diminished with you know with all the different major stations. Is college radio stations still a good venue for people? Yeah, I mean, they're still. I mean, maybe it's not what it was of the early '90s, you know, uh, but it's still viable. And, uh, not even just on a hip hop urban aspect, but there's there's certain genres of music that kind of thrive off that college, like the alternative triple A scene. Like there's big big college stations in those formats. So oh, good. those genres, yeah, that's still a viable um, format to like go after. Maybe not for like hip hop on the in today's terms, but yeah, like there's like a station in uh, uh, LA. Um, that you know that people want to get on that's basically an alternative um, college station but it's one of those that like you you get you can get on there then it, it could steamroll into other stations you know, so, yeah. but like I say to any artist again everybody wants like back then FM radio was king you know so to be on the radio that's what you want to do I think now there's so many platforms for a new artist which is great. You know, you don't have to rely just on FM radio. Like mm-hmm. I almost tell new new artists now, don't worry about FM radio because it's changed over here. You know, now you hear the same pop songs. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, it's every funny. Minutes. Yeah, it's funny you say that because that's one of the things that I was gonna um, ask you. You know, like you hear a lot about um, radio kind of being dead. Is music radio? Is music radio as we know it dead, or is it just on the decline? Because now, primarily, when you turn on the radio, it's more so about the talk aspect. And like you said, it's probably five songs you may hear, you know, mm-hmm. over a four-hour show span. You're going to hear those songs in different yeah, orders. It's, yeah, but, it's regurgitated, you know, because it's all yeah. about, you know, like, I don't know, the people who are in charge of programming right now. They, programming. They, they was like, oh, this is how we should run a station. We should only have five records that play, like, every 30 minutes. And then the next set of five records that play maybe every hour. So it's like two a team. Mm-hmm. So now it's just like plugging it in, plugging it in. And they only rotate so many songs, you know, throughout the day. Um, so now it's just cookie cutter. That's why like almost every station sounds basically the same. Um, whereas in the ni- you know, 90s, like, you know, we were really trying to break records. And we, yeah, we played certain records a lot because they were the big records at the time. Yeah. But we relied on like mix show to play those new records that weren't in rotation so that was kind of like all right mix show was like we want mix show to break those new records you know mm-hmm. while i blow these records up in in regular rotation my mixer guys are like okay when these records die out we have the next like Wait. 10 records that move right in seamlessly yeah. and that's how i ran it where now it's just like even mix show was playing the same five records or 10 records that that rotation's playing that you just heard 20 minutes ago, and then all of a sudden they go into mix show, 
and it's didn't we just hear that 20 minutes ago? <laughs> yeah. And again, I get frustrated because I still do my show on a couple radio markets. So, and every week I get a list. This is what we're playing. So, I get you know, yeah, I make the mix, but I get bored of it. Just like you know, so, yeah. you know that's why I try to like freak it differently, like, <laughs> a, a record over different yeah. things like that. Put some production in between, yeah, you know, just to make it fun, so mm-hmm. it's not boring. So, um, so, so, what happens if the promotion doesn't yield any results? Um. So here's the double-edged sword. When you're at a label, you know that's part of the part of the game. You have money, and budgets to put into those efforts. And again, it's it's no no guarantee. Even when these art you know artists are signed, and are thinking, oh, this is gonna be the next big hit. Sometimes it flops. So then they uh, the record doesn't catch on at radio. Or even now, the metric is not even radio. It's like, Street. are the sales gonna go? Like if we drop this, you know, on whatever, like you know all the uh, GSP platforms. If it doesn't sell like within the first week or two, then they pull the plug. So, mm. Nowadays, labels are like, if we don't have to spend the money, yeah, we're not going to put into it. Whereas before, they would put a couple hundred grand into like an, a, a single from you know, like we get a couple you know, like hundred fifty to work at radio, mm. another hundred and fifty to work at marketing, another hundred that works like whatever. So early on, those early two thousands, before. Some of these artists sell one record; they might be five hundred thousand in the hole. Yeah. And you got to remember, at a label, it's 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 we're you know, I hate to say it, we're a glorified bank. So mm-hmm. we're like putting out the money up front for these artists. Yeah. But when they do sell um, a CD or album, recoup. Mm-hmm. Learn that word, recoup. <laughs> Basically, the label is going to recoup what they're owed first before the artist gets to see a dime. Yeah. So if they're already five hundred thousand in the hole and they only sell like twenty, thirty thousand, and that only yields two hundred thousand, they're still upside down three hundred thousand. So then what happens? The label drops them and they just write them off as a loss. Yeah. And that that artist is now like on the streets again. Damn. But for into part independent artist that has to put up that money out of their own pocket that's the hard truth and that's the, sometimes the hard part as well because sometimes you need you need a you need capital behind the machine you know, like you can't yeah. just make a dope record but then just expect to put it out and it's going to blow out blow up even yeah. dope records you still need fuel behind the fire like mm. you may light or light the match but that fire is going to go out so you need read, gasoline read lighter fluid which is basically the budget yeah you know, to like keep that fire going and you know even the best of them you know uh, yeah. you know you, you need that so that's and that's the hard part because i hate it because as an independent promotion company that i do now sometimes i take calls and and i talk to these independent artists and you know they want to do this do that and but they don't still re- realize the game the, the business aspect of it yeah and yeah. then when i'm truthful about budgets or what on a minimum scale like you need at least this and it's like you know sticker shop what well well well, what is what what um when you tell them okay this you this is the money you need to put behind it to invest in your song or record where does those funds where do they actually go to when we start talking about like because marketing before what it used to look like to me 
doesn't seem to be the same. Before, there was a way to see the market in dollars. I remember like during the golden era, you would see vans wrapped with people, um, you know, stick stickers, street teams, um, in-store posters, in-store appearance, all these different things. Now it just seems like promotion is, I'm gonna post you on the internet kind of thing and we don't see it. So I'm just wondering like, where do the finances go in terms of the, um, when you tell a person you need twenty thousand yeah. dollars behind this record, yeah. Well, you know, like I said, it's it's different. I mean, whether they're chasing FM, but like I said, a lot of times now, like I tell artists, like go after some of these other platforms first, and if you have a big story there, then it's easier than to no, go mm-hmm. after FM. Because if you just go after FM Cold Turkey, you better have a dope ass record that they want to play. Because mm-hmm. number one, like FM radio is not what it was in the 90s. Like they're probably either dictated by corporate that. So a lot of times now I talk to programmers in the iHeart chain, they're program director, that is their title, but they don't even pick the music that goes on the station. Oh, wow. What a shame, right? That's your job, like on paper, but you still can't. The, the money, the music that they're playing is coming down from corporate. Mm. And that's the shame that, that it's become that way. And that's what, one of the reasons why I left Kimio when I did, because I already started seeing oh, so it was that going in that direction. I was yeah. like, um, I don't want to be a part of this. So that was one of the reasons why I ended up leaving in 2001. Okay, but too. to answer your question in terms of um, money, like, like say for instance, I'll even take it back. Like say what, what I was talking about a promo run. Mm. Like imagine if like a West Coast artist wanted to do a promo run, most essentially wanted a visit you know, like in the West Coast, there's like 20, 25 stations that you can hit in like 10 days. Like if we went every day, like if we started from LA mm-hmm. to San Diego and we worked our way down to the Bay Area, to Sacramento, to Reno, like, you know, I could be on the road with an artist like maybe 10 days straight and visit all these radio stations and then do dinners with DJs, take a PD out to dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where the cost would be, like, yeah. like that. and then obviously your travel costs. Like, we got to stay in a hotel. Yeah, or, you know, we got to rent a car for ten days, and yeah. then on top of that, I don't work for free ninety nine. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> do um, so, do you do, pay, you know? Yeah. You still have the ability, though. To is does the ability still exist to walk a person into a radio station? Like, is that element still there? Like, yeah, it's, you it's, could it's say, all right. Obviously, during COVID, everything was shut down. Yeah. Yeah. Like, labels weren't even going off. Still today, like, labels haven't even gone back to their home offices. Everybody usually works from home. Yeah. Like, the Capitol building, as we speak right now, it's not even, it's gutted. They're retrofitting it. So, no one even works in there. So, everybody works from the, from the home office or alternate offices under the UMG family. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, but now, yeah, 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 they're, they're taking meetings again. And again, that's part of what you're paying for. Yeah. Like you, as an independent artist, you can't just walk into, you know, Hot 97, unannounced, you know, you can't walk into KML, iHeart, like unannounced. You have to have relationship. a meeting or basically have a, someone that has a relationship that can book that meeting. Mm-hmm. So essentially that's a person like myself or any other person that does independent promotion mm. that's what we're hired for yeah um you know something i want to go back to just i guess like the program director aspect and you know early on i was saying like one of the things that i really like about the bay area is that you know you guys were eclectic and willing to break local yeah. artists um but the irony of that for me is that for many years in new york hot 97 program director was ebro 
And yeah. Ebro is a Bay Area guy. Yeah. And Ebro, I would have thought that the the whole Bay Area experience would have translated well in New York City, where he would have been eclectic and had the air to say like, "Oh, I'm, you know, we could we can incorporate some of the new talent in New York, also, you know, rather than just jumping off, jumping out with anything." It's just like every skill and everything that was going on in Bay Area. Um, radio and how you guys did things. I don't know if he applied it to to New York per se. Like I think he missed the mark with it. Um, and I just I've just always been a fan of. I think like um, when you go to other markets, what I like as I travel around the country is that at any given time, I can turn on the radio station and I can hear not only their local artists but I can hear artists from other places. Yeah. And again, I just go back to where there's a time in New York where you didn't we didn't hear any of our local talent or upcoming talent there's a lot of guys that are newer artists in new york that got broke in other markets and other regions because new york radio wouldn't give them a chance yeah even even to do so so i'm i don't i'm just what what, what is the disconnect i don't know are you familiar with ebro yeah, no you, yeah I, I know emo yeah the funny story rewind back when me and sway were doing the 10 o'clock bomb ebro ebro was from sacramento which is like uh like a maybe an hour and 20 minutes outside of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So um, Tuesdays and Thursdays, we were doing the 10 o'clock bombings, like 10 to 12. Ebro would come and, you know, mess with us. And then I remember at the time, he was like, yo, I'm, I'm like reading sports in the mornings on KSFM, which was a local station in Sacramento. So then, you know, that's what we knew him as. And then eventually he was a program director. Uh, there was a, a station called The Bomb that, there was a mom and pop station that was, um, in Sacramento, then he he basically made it like KMEL, emulated what we did, and eventually um, he moved to New York and you know was doing like mornings out there. And eventually, you know, then at, before he blew up mornings, like he was like music director at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, again, like uh, we lost touch over the years. Well, I mean, we saw each other today, we're cool, but again, I don't know. Again, could be the politics of things. Mm. You know, he was there, so you know, I, I can't say per se, but you know, class act, and I. I I salute him because, like I said, I remember when he was hungry. I remember he was messed with us, and and he would be like, "I'm just gonna stay up and drive straight from here and go to SAC, and I'm just gonna go to the station and not even go to sleep." But that's how hungry he was. It was like how hungry we were. So to see him, like, "Oh wow, pull off that to come from yeah. West Coast to become Hot 97 yeah. program director." Like, yeah. Man. Now he's and doing I remember at the time the there was uh, yeah, there, was that. Now he's doing the um the morning show. He stepped down yep. from the um the director position. He does the morning show, and he um Apple music too, right? Apple music as well. Yeah, he's he's but he's he's villainized, and um in the tri-state, like a lot of people <laughs> pin him as the death of the development of uh, up-and-coming New York artists. <laughs> They're hanging on him. Yeah, you know you're always gonna have flack. Like I said, mm -hmm. like when, when you know it wasn't always roses for me when I was a Kenya because then I had haters. You know I had. Uh, like rewind back, there was a time that like, like I said, we played everything. So, but I think locally, some of those local rappers that didn't get a shot on Cameo that felt they did were like, you know, fuck Cameo, they're not supporting Bay Area stuff. But my thing is just like, I'm going off of people on here, whatnot. So one time, like now, like Cameo or pretty much any station in, in America, you know, doors are locked. You can't get stepped you know in that building mm. unless you get buzzed in by security yeah. it was once early 90s or a good part of the 90s you could just walk into 
our building, get in the elevator, go to the fourth floor, and then just like go straight to the receptionist. Obviously the offices, but it was that accessible. So one day I'm in my office and I just hear all this commotion outside, just yelling, yelling. Reception, Glenn, come out here. I come out here. There's like <laughs> 30 local artists, just people. Oh, it was wow. like, a, hell no, we won't go. You know, it was like they might as well have like oh, signs, man. like, you know, but they were all like, fucking you know, you're not supporting. Me. And it was just like, you know, almost thought like it was going to like be a riot. Mm-hmm. But then my GM had to come out. And, and even at the time, E40 was supporting that because even he felt that we weren't even playing. And at the time, you know, again, like, you know, there was hits and miss with 40 stuff. So Mm -hmm. we didn't play it. And I I guess at the time, you know, they felt we were playing more of that, like, you know, at the time, cash money stuff, all that stuff, and this and that, and and the New York records that we were playing on the air. So they felt slighted. And I remember, like, you know, I had to, like, pull 40 aside, a couple others, and, like, okay, we, we can't have a civil conversation with, like, all you guys here. So. Come back tomorrow. Like you pick a couple representatives, we can have a discussion. <laughs> and then I remember the next day, it was supposed to be eleven o'clock, ten thirty comes, and then like receptionist, oh, someone's out here. And I guess it was supposed to be run with a representative, but the day before he was on some like whatever. And then he goes, he tried to, hey, can I talk to you? He's like, hey man, about yesterday. And I wasn't really part of that. He thought it was like, you know, I just got caught up. And he was basically trying to like, hey, please talk to me like, yeah. this is my record. I'm like, man, you was here yesterday trying to like say we're going to tear, tear the roof down. <laughs> they just showed his colors. And then later on, we had the, we had the meeting. And I sat them down and I, I, I gave him my perspective. I said, you got to understand, you know, yeah, I love to play everything, but if I have. I, I mean, I have 30 slots to play, you know, filled with music, and then I might have like five slots to play like new music. Mm. And if it's 20 of you guys trying to have me play, and I only got five slots, I've, I'm still that lost, right? Mm-hmm. 15 of you guys are going to be FU Glenn because you ain't playing my stuff, so I'm not going to lose. So I have to then see what what's viable, what makes sense for my. And it's like it's not even me; it's about the listeners, mm. but, you know. So. I may like your record, but like, you know, does it work for KMEO? And yeah. that's, that's the hard decision I have to make. Kimmy. So, and they got that. And then, um, then I remember at the time there was a, a local act that, you know, they were D boys and they was hard in the streets and they were saying on some like, yo, KMEO street team band comes to club. We're going to fuck it up. We're going to like make it hard for you guys to be in the streets. Damn. Right. And we're like, damn. So then, but I remember, yeah, I would do weekly music meetings with, and I would open up to anybody. So then I remember they actually made a record. They, they pressed up some vinyl, they played it. And I was like, this is good. Like I, <laughs> give me a box of records. I gave uh, I gave the records to um, the, the guys and we started mm-hmm. playing it. And it started like getting phones and to a point where I put it in rotation. I started playing it about 30, 40 times a week. Wow. Right? And they were so happy. So right. you know what happened? They came and saw me on the, you know, month later, like, Hey man, whatever you need in the street, we got you. <laughs> you became the cop. You got any beef with any of these other artists? You let us know. Uh, you know, you know, you know something though. Like, um, to me, that's sort of like expediting the process because 
had they would have took the approach that you were saying, like if they would have went to the DJs and gave the DJs the records, because I mean, I don't know if at that time, like the actual DJs, the mixed DJs, did you have discretion over what they played or did they have the ability to say, like, I got a local artist that I want to play their record in the mix or it had to be ran past you also? Yeah, so essentially what, what I did is I was always, my, my, my crew, we were called the All-Star DJs, the Kamiya All-Star DJs, so I was always a part of it and then I oversaw it and even when I was music director, I still oversaw it and then even as program director, you know, I still oversaw things, but we would meet weekly and we would collectively speak about records. What's going to go so in? I was always under the impression, let's be a united front versus like every man for themselves. Because mm -hmm. I saw, you know, like Hot 97, it would be like flex on his own, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. Like he did what he had to do. I know you heard the stories, like whatever. <laughs> well, now, whatever. I'm not going to talk about that here. Like, whatever. You know, you wanted him to drop a bomb on your record, you know, X amount yeah. of. That could be an expensive bomb. Yeah, that's an expensive. <laughs> Remember at Capitol Records cutting those checks. Yeah, <laughs> talk about that another time. But um, um but, but Jamie, you... like we we really we we talked about records, and like I said, it, it was great because because I knew as a whole because we mixed so much every day. If everybody got on the same page and played the same record, we could probably play a mix show record thirty to forty times, just mm. mix show without me even programming it. And 30, 40 times in 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 rotation back in the nineties, that's like gold. That's huge, yeah. Yeah. That could make or break a record, you know. So mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting that you would even say that um you like the part you just said about um cutting remember cutting the checks and the bombs whatever, because a lot of people don't acknowledge that part actually exists. But um just to just to um to go back and talk a little bit, I guess like about from the um the standpoint of the the DJs and the breaking the records. So did you ever have a DJ that had the same level of ambition that you had with the Lauryn Hill record that said, oh man, I heard this somewhere. I'm going to go out and creatively figure out a way to get this record and get it in. That that maybe they didn't pitch it to you in your meeting and you just happened to be sitting in your office and like, what the hell is this record? We didn't speak about putting this in the rotation. You ever had that experience? Um, I mean, I think collectively, like when we would talk, like there would be those moments where like some of the guys would be like, oh, I'm feeling this record. And then we were like, oh shit, you know, yeah, that's, that's dope record. Then, you know, then collectively, oh yeah, let's, let's jump on that song. I mean, maybe another of the guys did what I did in terms of like how I did on Hill, <laughs> you know what I mean? But in terms of like, yeah, like my guys were tuned into the streets and that's why I relied on them. And like I said, being, being a DJ myself, that's why I felt the DJ was very important because to me, they were the pulse of the street. Mm -hmm. They were like, yeah. they knew where the hockey puck was going next because they were in the club. So, you know, at the time, whether it would be the dance hall stuff, those independent dance hall records that were hot in the clubs, but yeah. maybe didn't translate in terms of like um, sales or whatever, mm -hmm. but you go to the club and those records come on and like it would blow up. I needed to know that, or like I would physically see it because I was still DJing in the club. Mm -hmm. So then I'd be like, well, let's sprinkle some of this on the airwaves too, or yeah. make sure let's blow this stuff up, you know, so. You know, it was just a good balance of, you know, just getting the right records on the king. And that's what I think I loved about that era, you know, um, obviously after mm -hmm. I left, you know, corporate got a hold of things and, you know, I think that's, that's what was great about. And, you know, to rewind about KML, it's not even just me that came from KML. There's a few of us that left uh, KML became uh, promoters on the label side at Major Prince Ice, um, mm. the DJ that later on went to go relatively 
um, worked there. Uh, Alex Mejia, who was before me, who was one of my mentors, he went on to go to Virgin Records. So we worked with like mm -hmm. Janet Jackson. He was the one who brought like the Loonies. I got five in. I'm on it. Some of those mm -hmm. Bay areas signed to deals over there. Keith Naftali, who was like my first um, PD when I was there in 91. He is a uh, head of A&R at RCA Records. So everybody from Chris Brown to King to everybody under the RCA umbrella over the last so many years. Responsible for that. So KML was a breeding ground for a lot of talent. And then even on Airwise, like uh, CEO um, who went to LA and became a big, huge voice out there. And just even people of the late 80s, just like I said, it just, I don't know. I don't know, something in the water with Cameo, like yeah. people wanted to get to Cameo as the pinnacle part of their career, but a lot of people use Cameo as then Stepping the stomping, yeah. stomping ground to then yeah. get to the next level, which yeah. you know, I did. Like, like I think back, like if I stayed, would I have continued to be, you know, stay program director or how long would have lasted before I would have been like, I'm out. You know, but, Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm, I'm one of the few that was fortunate enough to see both sides of the, of the music industry, mm -hmm. learn the radio aspect of it, and then going to a major label and learning the promotion aspect of, of the business. So now I apply that now yeah, yeah. to my independent company I do now. Rob, uh, um, Ken, any other questions? I'm cool. Oh, good. Man. Yeah, good. man. This is this was extreme, yeah. extremely informative. Like to hear hear the um promotions part and the um the actual music director and program director part because um you know it's it's it to me is interesting to, to to know the inner workings of how a record actually finds itself on the radio. You know, like people think that these records find their way on the radio by chance, but the fact that you sat here and broke it down. And um, now I think it's very apparent to even people who are not in the music industry that corporations have swooped in and really, really have a strong influence around where radio is. And that's why I had asked you earlier, I'm like, you know, in terms of music on radio, where, you know, where are we? Because I feel like talk radio seem, has seemed to surpass the importance of actual music on the radio, you know, and, you know, and I think also with like the advent of um, internet radio, FM radio, is not nearly what it used to be like this. It's not as much stock seem like to be put in FM radio as it once was. I got a question. I'd like to hear your opinion on De La Soul getting control of their music. Oh, I, I love it. I mean, it hurt. It was like hurtful all these years that you couldn't even get that their, their music on DSPs. Mm -hmm. So to know like, you know, Nick in March that like finally it gets, it gets to stream. Like, man, that, that's the dope. Entire catalog. Yeah. 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 So yeah, salute to those brothers. Um, and even um, one of my treasured trophies, or like like I say, like in, when, when you're in the uh, music industry, you know, I was fortunate enough to get record plaques, you know, for, for sales or whatnot. So one of my most treasured plaques, I wish I, maybe another time I'll show it to you. So like the, that album, Free Feet High and Rising, um, mm. it took 10 years, but it went uh, platinum, right? But I remember, you know, was it, what, 88 when it happened, when they released that or whatever, 89. Uh, 10 years later, I remember they, it was like a big deal for them to go platinum. So they made um, a plaque, right? Uh, but it was the best plaque ever because basically it was like a square box. It had the picture of it. And in the middle, it was the record, platinum record. They put a motor inside. So when you plug it in, it spins. Wow. Oh, wow. It spins, you know, so. And I remember they came to KML and I was like, 
I had all three of them sign it separately on it. So yeah, that's dope. Yeah, like if you check out my Instagram, I think it's on there. But yeah, yeah. It's one of those. so even for me to be like, oh wow, finally, they're uh, you know they get to finally get their stuff. So you know, hopefully, <coughs> hopefully the young generation that don't really know them can actually get do it. the history. I, I like I said, just just go back. Like, I get it. Music is a little different than it was today. Just like when we were growing up as youngsters, you know, right. our parents were like, what are you listening to? So it's like like the same like. Like my son doesn't even listen to radio; he listens to Spotify. But even like the artists that he likes, you know, like, well, who do you listen to? You know, Little TJ or whatever. You know, so yeah. like, <laughs> like he didn't even know who Sway was when I said, "Oh, you know who Sway is?" Like he doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> or even like you know, I uh, remember I have a plaque of uh, Dr. Dre, uh, the Chronic, mm -hmm. the Chronic from the 2001 yeah. uh, triple platinum. <laughs> I was like. Here, hold this. I'm gonna take a picture holding it. That's like you're holding history in your hand, and he's like me, like you're <laughs> <laughs> like holding history in your hand, like you know, like there's only whatever you know, just go to show, but it just goes to show it educate. And I, I think now, like I said, I was like, I'm I I'm I'm humbled that I'm even doing an interview with you guys because I'm thinking like who wants to hear my story or talk to me? But if for me, I I, I just wanna continue to push the, the DJ culture or, you know, let mm -hmm. people know what, how we had to do it in the 90s and let them know our struggles and at the same time know what we did to lay the foundation so it's easier for the DJs of today to do what they do now. Okay. So we got we got your, we got your Instagram on the, um, right now on the screen, but if people want to get in contact with you, you know, or, or people want to work with you, how would they go about contacting you? Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Young said, "Did Sway have the answers in the early '90s?" Remember Kanye told yeah. him, "You don't got the answers." You don't got the answers, Sway. You don't have the answers. <laughs> Remember that word? Like, you know, you, you know. I mean, yeah. much love to Sway, man. Like, I, like I, 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 man, like I said, like it's 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 crazy to see his journey because I remember when we did the morning show, I would pick him up almost every day at his grandma's house in Oakland. I lived nearby. Mm. like you know just to pick them up and like i said we we're doing the morning show just doing something we love it wasn't right. even about and then i remember when he said like i'm i'm going to mtv and i was just like what like, <laughs> on mtv and then i remember him going on to mtv and breaking down that barrier like you know mtv was all you know like nothing urban based but then here he is like doing all these big interviews yeah. and you know interviewed barack obama you know what i mean yeah. so it's like there's a kid from Oakland that I was picking up every day doing that, you know, and then now he's doing this thing, uh, you know, Sway in the Morning. Like, I got, I had a chance two years ago to mix again with him. He did, oh, nice. I was able to guess spot, and it was like full circle, because, um, you know, to be on Sway. Yeah, serious, and then, you know, even before uh, I went on, like, you know, I recorded it, I sent it when he's in New York, but he just gave me a nice big speech prior to, and, you know, I almost yeah. cheered, because it was like, Full circle, like no. He even said we were doing it. You know, this, you know, Glenn, me and him, we would, you know, do it every day in the morning. And you know, and, you know I literally had tears in my eyes, just like wow, to, you know, to, to to rock with him once again. Um, so yeah, like I said, I, I'm just humbled about this whole journey of mine. Um, I'm fortunate to still be in the music industry as we speak. Like I, I, like I said, now I'm going on like 30 plus years in the business. Look so, at that. Yeah, I'm fortunate to still be here. And, and, so yeah, yeah, you can like my, my my you can hit me there Instagram, um, 
there's a new account that we just uh, launched. Hold on. Tell them what it is. The manager shine, but mm -hmm. oh, whatever, whatever, my brother, uh, double barrel job. So, oh, yeah, so, so it's Ty T H I underscore, um, Aure, A U R E underscore ENT Entertainment. So, that's the new one. So, people can hit me on that page or you know, DJ Glenn Aure, um, just DM me there. Um, and then, uh, if you want to reach me, I still do DJ work and stuff like that. I still try to dabble in the studio doing like remix work, things like mm -hmm. that. So I try to still keep busy. And like I said, I, I have a, a weekly show that airs in a few uh, radio markets and I'm looking to expand on that as we speak. So you're on oh. Twitch too, right? Yes, I'm on Twitch. Uh, my handles is also the same at DJ Glenary on Twitch. Um, so yeah, so I, I'm usually on once a week uh, right now. I just moved back to the Bay from the from LA. I was in, I've been in the LA since 2001. I just moved back to the Bay like, mm -hmm. a couple months ago. So. So just get acclimated with things, but uh, once I get the studio up and running, then uh, I'll be on my own channel. But right now, I'm just doing a little, little guest spot. Work and okay. Yeah. You know, usually follow me on um, Instagram, and you can get the information there. But again, I just want to thank you guys for having me. Thank you. you know, thank you. Thank anytime, you. anytime. Thank you for the discussion. Thank, thank you. everybody for tuning in this evening, ladies and gentlemen. DJ Glenari. Have a good evening, everybody. Please. Shout out, Ty Tiger. <laughs> she's too shy she don't want to say hi come on come on say hi before we go here say hi